0: Financial crises like the one caused by COVID-19 alter the course of economies and markets, but they also alter the course of central banks and governments. And just as they have in past crises, policymakers have stepped in once again with previously unthinkable tools. Today, Brent Johnson and William White discuss the evolution of the seemingly perpetual cycle, endeavor to answer the question of whether we are nearing the end of the easy money experiment. As well, they discuss the implications of this policy response on the global dollar system in a conversation that I can only describe as an absolute pleasure to observe.
1: Hello, everybody. This is Brent Johnson. Um, I'm with Santiago Capital, and I'm happy to be here on Real Vision today. I have the immense pleasure of being able to speak with uh, Bill White, Um, and I'm going to give a quick introduction of him, but he really needs no introduction. He's been on Real Vision several times, and I've been following him for several years and read several uh, pieces of his work, and uh, I got to tell you, Bill, uh, you're lucky we're not sitting on like a six-hour flight next to each other because I know I would drive you crazy for the whole six hours. So if you get sick of me at any point, you can just hit the stop button on your computer and uh, we'll go from there. But I'm really excited to get to speak with you today.
2: Well, i Well, I'm looking forward to it too. I think it's going to be uh, a lot of fun and uh, uh, both of us might learn something.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I know I could learn a lot from you, and I know there's going to be a lot of different things that we talk about. I think uh, maybe just quickly, let's uh, you know, I, I'm Santiago Capel. I'm a money manager, for lack of a better word, in San Francisco. If you could just give a quick little background on you, who you are, for the people who haven't heard you speak before, that'd be fantastic.
2: Oh, shucks. Well, I come from a small town in northern Ontario in Canada, and I guess my first big job was uh, deputy governor of the Bank of Canada. And then I subsequently went and became the economic advisor, uh, running the economics department at the Bank for International Settlements, which is where all the central bankers uh, meet up every uh, in the old days every month and more recently every two months. And then I was the chairman of the Economic and Development uh, Review Committee at the OECD, which does all sorts of country surveys. And now I'm uh, semi-retired back in Canada. And I'm a senior fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute in Toronto. Fantastic. Well,
1: I think one of the reasons I think that I've, I've been looking forward to speaking to you today is I think as I've moved forward in my career, I've at times been fairly critical of central banks from the outside looking in. And when I look back at some of your work, you have <laughs> I think I think it's fair to say you've been somewhat critical of central banks, but you've done it from the inside looking out. And so I, I you know, I think it, it's it's kind of an interesting. Uh, place we find ourselves in now with, with with both of us having those those viewpoints but then also with you know central bankers are like celebrities these days people actually know who they are and they're you know highly quoted you know 10 or 15 20 years ago I don't know if it was necessarily the case but it, it certainly is interesting times as it relates to central bankers
2: yeah absolutely and uh, it's 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 sort of funny in a way because the um uh, the central bankers were really at the, uh, the, the, the heart of the crisis and having allowed sort of very rapid credit expansion in so many countries prior to the, the great financial crisis. And one might have thought that there would have been some kind of a pushback uh, on the central banking community. But uh, rather oddly, there, there has been even greater reliance on the central banks to keep the system afloat. And in addition to their monetary policy responsibilities, of course, they've been given an awful lot more regulatory responsibility. So they're now um, even more important than they were
1: before. I find that kind of amazing
2: as well. And um, I guess I would, one
1: of the questions I had for you initially is um, the fact that you. You know, you started warning about a potential crisis, you know, back in the late '90s, early 2000s, and mm-hmm. I, I know you presented a paper at the, you know, Jackson Hole Federal Reserve conference that was, you know, not well received. I guess is the right way to say it. <laughs> um, and so, my question to you is, were you always kind of a, a rebel, or were you always somebody who kind of pushed back against the authorities? I've heard you use the term the authorities before, or was, or did, or did something happen at some point in your career where you said, aha? This is different than what I thought, and therefore I need to now start pushing back. Were you the guy that wore the brown suit? In other words,
2: Um, yeah, I guess I've always been a bit sort of bit of an an intellectual rebel. Um, It 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 was certainly helped when I went to the Bank of Canada. Like I started my career at the Bank of England after I did my PhD, and then I went to the Bank of Canada, and I do remember a cocktail party at around uh, 1974, 1975. And the Minister of Finance was there, and he was about six foot five. And uh, he was being spoken to by my then mentor, a uh, deputy governor called um, um, George um, Freeman. And I can see George now looking up at this big tall guy, and he was about five foot six. And he was pointing, pointing up to him like this up at his chin. And he said, quote unquote, minister, how can you possibly believe that? <laughs> and this idea that just because people say something, or just because they're in positions of authority, it doesn't mean that they have to be right. And when you look back on history, I mean, think back to some fundamental things like is the sun at the... Is the earth at the center of the the solar system or is it the other way around? And people believe the wrong thing for thousands of years. Um, And we continue to believe an awful lot of things that are not true. And so I think having having a capacity to, to suspect that there might be false beliefs and to pursue those false beliefs and to try to show that they're false beliefs, I think that's an important an important attribute, and everybody really ought to try to cultivate that capacity.
1: but is isn't that somewhat rare within the circles you used to to work? I mean, it seems <coughs> to me that the you know all these central bankers at, at different countries, not necessarily just the Fed or the Bank of Canada, but you know, they all kind of went to the same schools. They all subscribed to the same um, um, theories of thought. They all use similar models from what I can tell. So for someone like you to kind of try to mess with those models, or I would think that that would maybe get some sideways looks uh, in the office from time to time. I'm just curious how that, how you yeah. were received by your colleagues.
2: Absolutely. Well, you made reference to that uh, presentation that uh, I and Claudio Borio, who is my close you know, colleague at the BIS, a uh, presentation that we made. And uh, it was almost uh, the, the, the logic was almost universally rejected. I think the only person there was Mike Musa, now sadly dead. He was then the head of the IMF Research Department, I think. He was about the only person there who said there might be something in it. One of the problems, I think, it's not so much with the central bankers, but it's almost with the academics. And you made reference, you all went to the same schools. And you all learned the same models. And you have the same view about how the world works. And I guess my contention would be that, and I've written about this on a number of occasions, is I think the central bankers, and for that matter, the, the macroeconomists generally, have made what I call a, a fundamental ontological error. It's a f- philosophical error. The question at issue is what is the nature of the beast? What is the nature of the system that you're trying to control? And the sort of almost universal belief is that it is simple and static, and therefore it is understandable and controllable and my contention would be no it is not simple and static the economy is a complex adaptive system like many other systems in both society and in nature and that means that it is not fully understandable and it is not fully controllable and we should really have a we should have a different starting point now When I was at the BIS, I would have to say that this terminology of complex adaptive systems, with which I'm now becoming more familiar, Mm -hmm. I wasn't really thinking in those terms. But what we were saying at the BIS, and I continue to believe that it's true, is that the most fundamental problem is not the business cycle. The fundamental problem is the financial cycle. And the financial cycle is basically fueled by credit expansion. Yeah. And it's the boom bust thing. And if you look back over the course of the last 30 years or so, you know, that really has been the problem. It's yeah. been boom bust as opposed to, oh my God, inflation is out of control and we have to tighten up and control it. Uh, that has not been the case really since the early 1980s. So we need a different. Almost a different philosophical orientation, a different starting point for the analytical process.
1: Well, one of the things that's always kind of amazed me, and it took me a long time to figure this out, but you know, I I had a kind of a fortuitous meeting in the mid two thousands with some clients that kind of led me to search into how the actual monetary system actually works and the way it's designed and the way money moves. And you know what I what I came to realize was that. In my opinion, the system itself—the design of the system—is inherently unstable, and and I find that interesting because you know to the extent that central bankers they all have these models and they all have these mathematical frameworks and they think if you push this button then this happens, and they have these complicated models, but the very simple model of which the system is based on, in my opinion, is flawed, and that is that if if you loan money into existence, the 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 debt is always going to be bigger than the the capital off of which it's levered, and then you get into a system where, for it to remain stable, it has to grow. But if if anything grows forever, it'll eventually go exponential. Mm-hmm. And exponential curves never end well. They either go up and you have huge inflation or whatever it is, or it crashes and you get the bust. And so I I, I, I kind of find that you know it's a it's a contradiction to me that they have all these you know very incredible. Um, complicated models but the very simple model of the exponential system seems to be beyond their grasp
2: yeah well the um, the, the, the fundamental problem and and unfortunately this contradicts what's in a lot of the textbooks <laughs> the fundamental problem is that the banks do actually create money out of nothing. Right. You know, when you right. go in and get a loan, they basically just write up both sides of the balance sheet. And this is a sort of a variation on sort of fractional reserve banking that goes back really yeah. to the Venetians. You know, it goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. And we put up with this system uh, basically because it. What's the word? It it greases the wheels of commerce. Right. That if you have this kind of capacity to uh, get credit without actually having prior saving and therefore investment or spending, um, there's there's certain advantages to that. You know, it keeps the system yeah rolling along. Unfortunately, um, th- there's there's two sort of problems, and I think you're sort of alluding to it, but. Perhaps in a somewhat different way. One of them is that this process of sort of creating the money, in a sense, it's so easy it can very easily get out of hand. Yeah. And that really is the basis for this sort of boom bust kind of uh, problems that we've seen, really, from time since this system was brought in. It can get out of hand. Yeah. The second thing that worries me, and this is sort of closer to what you're alluding to, is that there is a kind of fundamental intertemporal inconsistency, which implies an unsustainability over time. And the way the way that I've been describing it uh, is that when you sort of basically use easy money, think about sort of in the downturn, to get out of a situation you induce people to bring spending forward from the future by, by taking, out, taking out debts, by, by right. credit, debt, spend the money, and it works. But the problem is that the debt, unless the, we can go into how, how you might get out of this, but generally speaking, what's happening is that that increased debt then acts as headwinds in yeah. exactly the same way as if you're using your credit card. And you sort of, you know, you use one credit card to pay off another credit card. The debts are getting bigger and bigger. Eventually, you can't get any more credit cards, and you know that in a certain sense, it's got to come to a stop. It's unsustainable. So this is a fundamental problem with the system. There, There is a fundamental flaw. There's many different ways in which you could deal with those flaws, but the idea that there is something What's the word? There's something fishy in the state of Denmark. I think, I think you're quite right. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well, you know, I know. I read in one of your papers you quoted a famous uh, Mark Twain line, and I, I always quote a famous one as well. But you said, uh, you know, the, the one you quoted was the it, "It ain't what you don't know that gets you in trouble; it's yeah. what you know for certain that just ain't so."
2: Yeah. So I yeah. guess
1: one of the questions I have for you right now: What do the monetary authorities think they know? That just isn't so right now, with what we have going on. Is there a problem that you see that they should be more aware of that they just don't seem to recognize?
2: Well, I think that the, this intertemporal thing that I mentioned uh, still has not gotten um, widespread acceptance. You know, when you go back through the last sort of um, really since the the early nineties. 19- well, it started, I guess, with Chairman Greenspan, the, the, yeah. the Greenspan put in 1987. The idea that monetary expansion will always work to increase aggregate demand, yeah. that's not true because of the headwinds. Right. And the second thing that's not true is the belief that the unintended consequences of monetary expansion, credit expansion, are not serious enough to be a constraint on the exercise of easy money, that too is not true. So I basically what you come down to in, in my sort of belief system is that you can't use easy money forever yeah. uh, because it won't work and because the side effects will come back, and if you'll pardon the expression, it will come back and bite you in the bum.
0: You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad.
1: Well, I think the, the other part of it, too, I'd like to get your thought of this is because you know, on the one side you have the the central banks who kind of has designed the system for lack of a better explanation. but then you also have the the fiscal side or the governmental side who, you know, of course they want to spend money, they get elected by spending money. the you know you don't you don't become popular by raining the the cash in. you become popular by sending the cash out. And so you know, because of these boom busts that you were talking about, it seems like every you know 10 years we get one of these crises and then when you're in the middle of the crisis the the politicians say this is not the time to fix the problem we're in a crisis right now we need to let's just save the patient
2: but yeah, then when, absolutely.
1: right and, and there's a certain truth to that but the problem inevitability. Is, is inevitability inevitability, inevitability. Right, right and so the, the the point is is like you know no 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 politician is ever going to be the one to take the hard medicine because as soon as they start to take the hard medicine, another crisis develops, and then you have to save the patient again. So I guess my question is to you is, are the problems that you see, are they fixable?
2: At this juncture? Yes. They're certainly not fixable in the traditional way. Um, I think the expansion of private sector debt and credit through monetary expansion. And I've really just talked about that. It's been used over and over. And I'll tell you honestly, Brent, the biggest mistake I've ever made in my professional career was underestimating how frequent, how well the central bankers could actually pull the iron out of the fire. You know, they've done this repeatedly. I guess I'm sort of going out on a limb and saying, I think this time it won't work. But certainly we're getting much, much closer to the end game. Yeah, And I think that's one of the reasons why, in this particular crisis, now I'm thinking about the pandemic and yeah. COVID and the rest of it, that there has been a general agreement that fiscal expansion has got to be used much more uh, than it was after the great financial crisis. And I think that general view had been building, uh, in the academic and the central banking community, even before the pandemic hit. Yeah. You know, there's more and more talk about look at monetary expansion has reached its limits, mostly in the context of having hit the zero lower bound and yeah. not being so sure about the, whether the, the, effect, the effectiveness of the non conventional in, instruments. So now there's sort of m- much more of a willingness to say it's got to be fiscal. And in some quarters, I think some people saying maybe we should have stuck with fiscal expansion more the last time and relied less on monetary because it's brought us to a bad place. But we are where we are. And now people are saying we're going to have to use fiscal much more than than previously. And of course, complement it with continuing to have ultra easy monetary conditions, both fiscal and monetary. But there's limits to that, too. And when you go back and you look, for example, at um, you know some of the work that Larry Kotlikoff, Kotlikoff did, you know the intergenerational accounting stuff, where you basically look not just at the on balance sheet stuff of governments, their yeah. contractual obligations like bonds, but you had in off, all the off balance sheet stuff, which is the Medicare, the Medicaid, uh, the pension funds, the yeah. contingent liabilities. The numbers get to be very, very large very quickly. And for all practical purposes, if you do the numbers, most governments are, from that technical perspective, insolvent, you know, in the sense that they they can't meet the intertemporal budget constraint without very significant increases in taxes. So, on the fiscal side, we're also in a place where we don't want to be. And it's a very similar. The reason is very similar to why monetary policy is ratcheted down to zero. Because in every sort of up to every downturn in the economy, monetary policy was eased significantly more right. than it was tightened in the subsequent recovery. And so, in both nominal and real terms, the interest rates just ratcheted down and down. Well, fiscal is, is equally asymmetrical because whenever you got into a downturn, The automatic stabilizer to kick in or discretionary spending, and there'd be a big, big increase in the deficit and debt, and then it was never redressed in the subsequent upturn. And so the debt levels just kept ratcheting up and up. And so we we are where we are. And now with this most recent thing, it's taken another turn for the worse. Now I personally believe, I said before, from a technical perspective. The governments are all insolvent. But the markets, okay, have actually been very patient with virtually all of the big guys. And basically, they basically said, I, I can do the maths, the technical stuff, but I think you'll sort this thing out in the fullness of time in a non inflationary way. And therefore, I'm prepared to give you the money. Right. And I think the markets will continue to be patient, the, for the big guys at least, for a significant period of time. So it's probably right to bring the fiscal weapon back into the macro stabilization. But, and this is again my own view, the market's patience is not infinite. And I think at the same time as governments say, Look at, we have to do what we have to do. I would really like it if they could also lay out a plan to, in a credible way, indicate that when the recovery occurs, that we are not going to go back to a world in which we will allow the debt levels to maintain, uh, to, to rest at a permanently higher plateau. I really wish they would do something about that. Another thing that's inevitable at this stage of the game it seems to me given the levels of debt that we have both public and private is that there will be a significant increase in the number of insolvencies and restructurings and we really ought to be we should, we should have been doing this for decades putting much more effort into ensuring that that process of restructuring liquidation write offs that process will be as seamless and as orderly as it could possibly be, and we haven't put anywhere near as much effort into that as we should have done. And there's been repeated calls from the IMF, from the OECD, from the Group of 30, pointing out the inadequacies in our legal and administrative frameworks. We should be putting a lot more effort into that because it's coming down the road.
1: Absolutely. Well, you know, a lot of the stuff that you just touched on the fact that we've kind of reached the lower bound on interest rates and we've gotten these huge debts on the fiscal side um, and they just can't go on forever. It's kind of led us to this new um, paradigm or potential paradigm of this MMT. Where instead of oh yeah, yeah, instead of loaning money into existence, you spend money into existence, and the idea that you know the government can just spend whatever they need and the in the inflation or they they try to control the inflation rate rather than the interest rate and and I think that that's been picking up speed because I think they're starting to realize to your point that we're kind of at the end of the other two options so but then this also kind of um it gets all very complicated, but it kind of starts to merge the treasury and the central bank, right? Yeah. Th- those two functions kind of get blurred. So I have two questions for you that kind of relate to this. One, are central banks really independent? And two, um, who, who it, when a push comes to shove, who has the final say? Is it the treasury or the central bank?
2: Well, you know, I um, I helped write a speech for my then governor. Uh, John Crow at the Bank of Canada back in the early 1990s, and he'd been given some award, and we had to write a speech for him, and it was about central bank independence. Okay. And I remember very clearly, this is back in the early 1990s, that I and my colleague Chuck Friedman I was working with realized that this this word was not a good word. Uh, that it was much better to think in terms of a central bank has got a mandate. Yeah. A central bank has powers to carry out the mandate. And it it has to be held accountable for meeting its mandate. And then you said, Where did the mandate come from? Well, right. in general terms, in a democratic society, the mandate comes from governments. Right. And you say, Well, and you're going to be held accountable. Well, held accountable by whom? Yeah, And the answer is by governments. So in a democratic society, independence in some broad sense doesn't make any sense, no. okay? Where we are all accountable to the yeah. people in some right. fundamental way. What it does mean, I think, and I think Stan Fisher pointed this out first, that it's, it's what we, we really mean by instrument independence, that once you've been given the mandate, then you have to have the independence from political influence, short term political influence, to do what parliament or the government has told you longer term that you should do, that's your mandate. Yeah. So independence, we've, we've never been independent in a yeah. broader sense. Right. And I think what too is also becoming increasingly uh, obvious is that central banks have always been worried about financial stability. I mean, when you go back and you look at the history of central banking, and aside from financing wars, which is, I guess, the first reason that they were set up, financial stability has been core to what they do. So to say that it's not part of what they should do, and as soon as you get into the financial stability business, the central banks have got some responsibility for that. All sorts of other players are in that game as well, right? the government's interested because in the end the government may have to pay up okay yep. the deposit insurance people are interested the financial regulatory people are interested so you're you're into a world now where you know the central banks have what have got to work more closely with with other people and when you think about QE okay so financial stability means independence is blurred okay, in a, in a, in a sense on the financial stability front, but as soon as you get into QE, you know now what we're talking about is there's a there's an overlap there with fiscal policy too, you know because the central bank um, is now basically into the debt management business. Yeah. So um, it was a nice period of time. I I do remember that. You know, when I was at the central bank at the Bank of Canada, and you had a clear mandate, and and uh, you you used these sorts of terms, you know, and you you sort of felt somehow that you didn't have to think about other people's concerns. But I think increasingly we realize it's not that simple.
1: So, when you were either at the Bank of Canada or Bank of England, what was there, uh, or or any? I guess it doesn't matter. Any of these places was there. A person either within your field or without your field, outside of your field that you either uh, saw as a mentor or that you really looked up to or that you know you thought that you would kind of model yourself after?
2: Well, this guy, George Freeman, that I was talking about earlier on at the Bank of Canada, you know, the one he, minister, how could you yeah. possibly believe that? That guy taught me a lot of lessons. I, I remember once. Um, I had written a speech, a presentation to be given at Semla, which is the central and uh, basically the, the the central banks of the north and uh, of the north and south America, and I'd written a piece about how the Bank of Canada conducted monetary policy, and I was told the day before I couldn't give it; it was too, you know, sensitive. And I had to spend up. I stayed up all night writing another speech and I was angry and I went to see this deputy governor one day to tell him how angry I was this after this had happened and it was the senior deputy governor who'd blown the whistle on me okay and um, the deputy governor was not there so I, I sat and waited and in he came with a sheaf of paper and he threw the sheaf of paper into the waste paper basket and I said what's that and he said, "Ah, it's the speech I was going to give." The senior deputy governor didn't like it. He threw it into the wastepaper basket. He said, "What are you here for?" <laughs> Nothing. I said, I, "I just came to see how you were." And that just taught me a huge lesson that it doesn't matter how senior you are, yeah. you know, that there's always somebody else yeah. uh, whose opinion you have to take into account. Yeah, and that's just the that's just the way the world works. And um, and in addition, um, and this came from George through various other means too. Y- you should be very humble always, because it could well be that what you believe is actually wrong. Yeah. And I've had this a number of times in my own life, and I don't rule out all my conversation with you. I don't rule out the fact that I may be saying nonsense once again. Yeah, yeah. I hope not, but.
1: Well, you just touched on something about you know there's a, there's always a boss, there's always a bigger boss, there's always somebody that you have to answer to. Um, I think this is interesting as it relates to the Bank of International Settlements because I, I think in the, in the popular narrative or at least the general public who is even aware of the Bureau of International Settlements or people in the finance world or the precious metals world, <laughs> um, the, the Bureau of International Settlements either has a very a high uh, connotation or a negative connotation depending on whether you support central banking or don't support central banking but the, the the question i have for you is i think the popular narrative is that the bureau of international settlements is the central bank for the central banks and therefore they are the bosses of the central banks and it all flows down but i've heard totally. you speak about i've heard you speak about so i'd love for you to for people who haven't heard this before i'd love for you to talk about that a little bit because i know you've said that you would give at the, as the Bureau of International Settlement, you would give ideas yeah. and suggestions, but in many cases, they just ignored you.
2: Yeah, well, the um, yeah, it's 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 the it's bank for international settlements. Yeah, it's oh, the BIS. Sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah, sorry, uh, sorry. sorry. B, yeah. BIS. Yeah, anyway, yeah. that the um, yeah, that's a total that popular understanding is a total misunderstanding. Okay, uh, we we are. I remember when I first arrived at the BIS thinking I was going to another central bank, and it took me about two weeks to realize I was no longer in the central banking business. I was in the tourist business. Uh-huh. And the BIS is a bit like the OECD. It, it's a host for meetings. That's all it does. It's a host for meetings. So. For example, not in the, in the monetary policy sphere, the central bankers all meet at the BIS, but in the regulatory sphere, okay, the Basel supervisors yeah. all meet at the BIS. Um, and the BIS provides a secretariat for them. In the same sort of way as when all the central bankers meet at the BIS, we provide secretariats to support the meetings. But all of the decisions whether on the regulatory side or on the monetary policy side, um, well, on the regulatory side, there are decisions taken at the BIS, but they're taken by committees made up of the national experts. Okay? It's, it's not the secretariat of the, cent- of the BIS that's making the decision, it's the, it's, the centri- it's the regulatory people meeting there, and insofar as the monetary policy side is concerned. There are no decisions taken at any of those meetings, right? Okay? Mm-hmm. But it's it's just a place for exchanging views. So people get a kind of heads up about what the Fed is thinking, what the Bank of Japan is thinking, or whatever. But no decisions are taken. And that gets us back to the discussion we had here just a few minutes ago about the the belief system. Because the belief system that most of these people are operating under is that each central bank should be conducting its own monetary policy uh, within a regime of floating exchange rates, in which case, it is possible to have an independent monetary policy. So all of the big guys are actually sort of looking at it from that perspective. So there's no sort of BIS view That sort of comes down to the central banks, which they then go dutifully back home and implement. Far from it. I think they often, in fact, I'm sure of this, they've listened to what we had to say over many, many years and then totally ignored it. And
1: so, when, when that would happen, when you'd have a meeting and when you'd make suggestions, and they would discuss it and then go back and do something else or or ignore it, I guess from your perspective, was that encouraging I mean, obviously, it's not encouraging, but did it become discouraging? Was it uh, was it frustrating, or was it just you just understood that's the way it was?
2: Well, we were obviously obviously discouraged. I mean, I remember on one occasion we we'd written a, a, a paper that. Uh, was being discussed at um, a meeting. I think it was called the global meeting, and it was basically a, 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 a statement that uh, credit expansion was was a real problem, and the growth of global liquidity, and the whole discussion got bogged, totally bogged down in a discussion of what does it, you know, how do you define liquidity and shifts in demand for money functions and all this kind of stuff. And the basic message seemed to me to just have been lost. And I can remember coming back to my office with my colleague and saying, "You know, it's like um, what's the word? It's like um, a Greek tragedy. Yeah, you can sort of see this thing coming down the road, and you you don't seem to be able to do anything about it. Yeah. But one of the questions that I remember putting to myself was, maybe we should have been much much clearer in terms of our Cries about, you know, we're going down a bad path. But the real problem was that I think we sort of pushed it as far as we could without getting the central bankers, who I remind you were the chief shareholders, you know, without pushing back and saying, well, no, you know, I've got a thousand PhDs working for me and they tell me that my way of looking at the world is right and your way of looking at the world is wrong. Yeah, and why should who are you guys in Basel anyway? And it's a fair cop. Yeah,
1: yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah,
2: yeah. So sometimes, um, well, there were everybody was always respectful. I mean, no yeah. question about it. I mean, nobody ever sort of turned on us and, you know, said bad things about the house view. Yeah, yeah. But uh, they just chose not to accept it.
1: Well, you know, it's funny because you you brought up the concept of a uh, you see a Greek tragedy to a certain extent, and you know, I I, I would share that sentiment and. I think you know that in the long term, I think that gold will do very well and maybe even return to its center in the financial universe, but the thing that I have been most focused on in the last couple of years is the the penultimate chapter that comes before that ultimate uh, reemergence of gold, and that is um, the tragedy that I see is that the of the dollar. And When most people think of the dollar, um, I think a lot of them think that the system is unsustainable Um, The debts are too big; they must be inflated away. So therefore, the dollar is going to go lower. And I uh, initially thought that. And um, over the last several years, I've kind of changed my view 180 on that. to, To your point of the, it's what not what you don't know that gets you to it's what you believe that just ain't so. Yeah. And for several years, I believed that the dollar was headed lower. And when I I finally came to the realization or the belief, because uh, I could be wrong, uh, but the belief that before that happens, the dollar is going to go much higher, and I think that's the crisis that's coming down the pike. And um, you know, the to your point, the the extension of credit has you know gotten to these levels that's unsustainable. And I think that's happened in every country. I don't think that the United States is unique in that situation. Um, you know, Canada's in very bad shape in that regard. Australia is not in great shape in that regard. You know, Europe itself is not in great shape. Um, just about everywhere you go, you you see the same thing. Um, but what what I found most distressing or most problematic is the fact that while each country has you know developed these problems in their local currency, on a global basis they've developed it. In the dollar basis, in other words, the dollar debts around the world have gotten to a point that they're just not sustainable. Um, you know, the, the 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 deflationary effects of all the previous debt that's been issued, and then in the last year, last ten years since the global financial crisis, the the speed with which the dollar debt has um, been issued on a global basis, there's almost as much dollar debt owed by entities outside the United States. As entities inside the United States. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I, I think the the dollar assets of non-U.S. banks are about the same volume yeah. as uh, as U.S. banks. Yeah, right. but I know it's it's a big issue.
1: And with with this case, the 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 big issue is that you know, to your point, there's two ways that money get created: either the central bank you know puts collateral into the account, or the commercial banks loan it out into existence. But when you've gotten to the end of the credit extension or the commercial bank's ability to create it, and it starts rolling back in, the country central banks outside the United States don't have the ability to add dollars to the system to re-collateralize it. Mm -hmm. And so it's come to the Fed to collateralize the whole world. And we saw that kind of start to pick up pretty rapidly in in March. That was somewhat quelled by the fact that the Fed came out and offered swap lines to various central banks. But in my view, and I'd love to get your thoughts in my view, these are temporary solutions at best. And I think the idea that the that the Fed can bail out the rest of the world by via swap lines while in theory possible is politically impossible or 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 yeah. or not mm-hmm. impossible, but not as easy to do in reality as it is in uh, theory. And I, and I've heard you say before what should happen and what will happen, Are not always the same thing.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: So so I'd I'd love to get your thoughts on the on the dollar debt.
2: Clearly, I mean it is it it is a a huge problem. I mean, if you look at the um, the the debt numbers, uh, global debt numbers collected by the Institute for International Finance. um, I think in two thousand and eight, global debt as a proportion of global GDP was two hundred and eighty percent in two thousand and eight. Uh, at the end of two thousand and nineteen, it was three hundred and twenty percent. So, if you thought the global financial crisis was a time of deleveraging, think again. Right. Okay? Now, what was interesting about that increase it was almost wholly uh, outside of the United States and in very large part in emerging markets. Yep. okay And I guess what worries me, and this goes back to your strong dollar thought, was, in two thousand and eight, the the trigger for the crisis, and the sort of epicenter really was excesses in the United States, okay, subprime and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And yet, even though the U.S. was in some sense the trigger for the problem, the dollar went up, not down. And that flummoxed some people like Nouriel Roubini and others who yeah. have basically been saying, you know, so if the dollar <clears throat> if the dollar was the epicenter of the problem and yet when the when the problem emerged the dollar went up how much more likely is it if the epicenter of the problem turns out to be outside the united states at the moment right and then there will be this this flight back into dollars for safety the the other thing is that and you've alluded to it is it's the particular component of of the kind of debt that has emerged, and one of the problems, as as you are well aware, is that a lot of this debt, in these non-issued by non- by people outside the U.S. that do not get their primary revenues in dollars, the debts that they've issued are dollar-denominated, and I think the BIS estimates are something like twelve trillion dollars worth of it out there now. Mm-hmm and china is a very china is a very big part of it and i think the numbers i've seen indicate that of that dollar debt i think 30% of it has been issued by the financial sector 40% of it has been issued by property developers mm-hmm. which just sort of makes you feel a bit sort of edgy to begin with yeah so there's going to be there will be a kind of dollar shortage um Claudio Borio and others that the, the BIS have pointed out too that when you when you add in all the swaps and the derivatives yeah that there's implicitly sort of still more borrowing going on in dollars yeah i think, so. I, think I think I,
1: I think the number's much bigger than and i think even on the bank of international settlements website i mean which is fantastic for data the the, the stuff i've looked at you know the the popular number is that 12 or 13 number but when you start Like really looking deeper, it can easily go to you know twice that amount. Um, So it's 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 a big problem. And so, but but what I I really wanted to to speak about was um, again on the swap lines was the ability for the Fed to bail out the rest of the world via them because um, you know I think it gets tough for you know Powell to give a swap line. To the ECB, who gives a swap line to France, who gives a swap line to Airbus, if we're also trying to bail out Boeing. Issues like that, right? There, there, oh, there, yeah, becomes, there, there, there becomes political issues <laughs> that I think uh, maybe supersede what uh, the financial system is, is desiring.
2: Well, my the comments that I've just made um, were, were designed to to support the view that you've got that uh, Houston, we, we have a problem. <laughs> yeah. Right. but the the next question that you've just raised is, well what are you going to do about it? And one thing that worried me a lot before the crisis. I mean, I've been making presentations um, you know with the the, the the title "Are we prepared for the next crisis?" And the answer is no. And one of the things that I've been really worried about has been this liquidity thing. And Jay Scott from Harvard, uh, wrote a book here a little while ago in which he points out that there's at least half a dozen provisions in uh, Dodd Frank that basically are going to tie the Fed's hands behind their back. And Janet Yellen has said she's worried that the Fed may not be able to respond mm-hmm. in the next crisis the way they did in the last crisis. Well, <laughs> They've done even more this time, and there's been yeah. a lot of worries about, the lega- as you know, about sure. the legality of, yeah. I'm not raising this issue, but other people have raised the question of whether what the Fed is doing, the ETFs and whatever, is is actually going beyond their legal mandate. But my thought was that if the Fed was going to run into constraints in terms of domestic provision of liquidity, surely implicitly, there would be constraints on their provision of liquidity internationally. Well, the crisis hit, and the Fed opened up these swap lines and in a very aggressive fashion, uh, which I was very thankful for, um, because I, I had been worried right from the start whether they would be able to do it, but they have done it, but you're right that the the more They do it, and the longer it continues, the more likely it is that there will be a kind of congressional pushback. Now, I don't profess to be any kind of expert about that kind of thing, but certainly raising it as an issue, you know, how far can we go here? um, It's an important question to ask. One of the big differences is that the last time in the great financial crisis, the the swap lines were basically with people who were largely European mm-hmm. and the Japanese, not totally, but largely, who were sort of, you know, friends and neighbors. And now the situation is a bit different because there's a lot of people, not least of whom the Chinese, uh, who are in this position. Yeah, and it's not at all clear that the road to the political road to the to the Fed being able to sort of help them yeah. uh, that that road is going to be open to them. So um, there there are there are some yeah. there are some concerns. The the other thing I mean, closely related is I mean, aside from the dollar liabilities, it's just the 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 overall uh, debt burden. Uh, I think the IMF estimates now that something like 40% of all the low-income countries are either sort of in a debt crisis or on the verge of a debt crisis, and that was before the pandemic hit. Right. Okay. That right. was the uh, that was the October um, global financial stability report of the IMF. So even before the pandemic, these people were in, yeah. you know, in in a in a very sort of risky situation. Yeah. And then the question becomes, how do you deal with them? Right. And I think the fund has already said that they've had something like 90 or 100 countries that have either come in for help or have said they want the fund to start looking into the prospects right. for, for getting more help. Right. So the debt issue more broadly is a, is a big issue. Um, and the very specific question of the dollar financing is a still more specific and um and and dangerous.
1: I I think a lot of people too don't quite understand that these swap lines they're not gifts, we're not sending them dollars for free. I mean, it's it's basically the extension of a loan, so it's not. It's not solving the problem. It's kicking it down the road again. It's it's to a certain extent making the problem bigger. And with with the COVID crisis, you know, we talked earlier about how the the money either needs to be moving in the system or new collateral needs to be added to it. The money's not moving because people aren't moving, right? Um, with with the with the pandemic shutdowns, and so it, it made a a problem that was already very large and, and exacerbated it. Um, but what one there there's to, to this point, and this is going to be a little bit of a jump, but it is somewhat related. I, I need to make sure I ask this of you, or else I'll kick myself later. With over the last couple of years, with the way that, that, that Donald Trump has uh, tried to renegotiate trade and the global order, and you know we've kind of gone from a unipolar global supply chain to now talking about dual supply chains, and you know countries that are friendly with us maybe get the uh, swap lines, and those who don't. Maybe don't get the supply chains, and because we are in this crisis now with COVID, you could almost think of it as like a not a warlike situation, but a crisis situation, and and government and monetary policy and fiscal policy could be driven in in a, in, a, in a crisis type situation or a warlike situation. And I have to ask you about this uh, this documentary and this book called The Princes of the Yen. Who um, uh, a, a man named Hugh Hendry brought it up a couple of weeks ago in an interview that I heard, and I had watched this interview or this documentary maybe seven or eight years ago, but I'd kind of forgotten about it. But I went back and watched it again, and what Japan did coming out of World War II, uh, you know, out of their crisis of World War II, is they did this concept called window guidance, where the Bank of Japan, in conjunction with the Ministry of Finance, so kind of working fed and treasury together they basically mandated that the banks give a certain amount of loans every month or every quarter and you know it, it wasn't a matter of whether they were creditworthy that wasn't the that wasn't the criteria the criteria was the amount of loans and so my question to you is as we get into these you know further into this crisis and we get into these problems of um, low growth, um, deflation. You know, Japan was able to push out of deflation by just spend, 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 and and the extension of credit, 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 credit. And even though we're already kind of at the end of this this bubble, so to speak, I, I'm curious if you think that that could be done by Japan or the Fed or Bank of Canada,
2: mm. forcing forcing people to make more loans. Yeah, that's right. Well, I, um, I think we're a long we're a long way from that kind of a kind of a world. Yeah. Not not least, I think, because um, people are increasingly aware that many of the loans that were made in the past were made to people who ought not to have received them in the first place. Yeah. And secondly, uh, growing suspicion. Uh, that uh, starting in Japan, going back a long time, uh, suspicion that a lot of the loans are really loans that have been extended to people who can't pay back the principal. Sure. And for that matter, can't even pay the interest. Yeah. So the, the, the idea that one would sort of come in with a heavy government hand and say, we want you doing still more of what you've done. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's. I don't think that's going to. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. I think what's much more likely is that there will be a recognition, uh, as I said earlier, uh, that there are a lot of loans there that will not, in fact, be serviced, and that we have got to face up to the fact that some of these debts are bad debts, yeah. and we're going to have to restructure them in a much more aggressive way than we've been doing up until now. And I've noticed just in the course of the last few days, I think there was an editorial in the, um, in fact, I think it was this morning in the FT. um, The FT is suggesting that that we've got to prepare ourselves for that. And um, I'm saddened that it's come to that. But if it is a reality, then as in all things in life, The sooner you wake up to the reality and say that's the problem and this is what we have to deal with, Mm -hmm. the better.
1: But aren't aren't central banks for the most part reactive agencies rather than proactive agencies? Don't don't they typically wait for the crisis to happen and then try to solve it as opposed to getting ahead of it?
2: Well, I think you're you're right. I mean, you made reference earlier on to the presentation at Jackson Hole. And I guess there, what we were basically saying, and I continue to believe it's a viable strategy going forward, is that central banks should recognize that excessive credit creation in the boom is the problem. Uh, It also determines not just the bust, but the magnitude of the bust, and that a sensible system would lean against the upswing with both monetary tightening and the tightening of so-called macro prudential uh, yeah. instruments to try to lean against the upswing. But there's been, I mean, dating from Chairman Greenspan's response um, in 2003, um, that's not the way that they've decided to do it.
1: So, in your experience, when these uh, crises have happened in the past, whether it was uh, the Asian currency crisis or the, you know, the 2008 Great Financial Crisis, um, you know, behind the scenes, you know, whenever central bankers come on TV or when they write things in the FT, or whatever, they always sound very confident and you know we've got this under control. But behind the scenes, was there ever not panic, <laughs> but was there ever you know discussion? Jesus, how, how <laughs> what are we going to do this time? Or do they just have absolute faith in their models that they'll work?
2: Well, you do remember um, in 2009, I think it was uh, Jean-Claude Trichet uh, lamenting the fact that um, they'd relied on all of these models and that the models had proved palpably wrong because they start off with a fundamental assumption that really... Big crises can't occur, and if they do occur, they'll self-equilibrate in a short period of time. Well, when the crisis occurred, the first of those propositions was wrong, and um, Jean Claude um, Im- immediately stated that he could see there was an, there was a problem with the analytical apparatus here. Yeah. Um, but you know the, the problem is that since that time. Even though there's been a kind of grudging recognition that there was something wrong with the analytical framework, what the central banks have done since 2009 has essentially been more of the same, which is uh, ultra easy monetary policy, with based on the two assumptions that I made mentioned earlier, which is that it will work to stimulate aggregate demand in an effective way, and that it won't have any intended side side effect. And unfortunately, it worked so ineffectively, it had to be maintained for a decade, during which period of time, these imbalances, not least of which was an expansion in overall global debt, just that expansion got, um, as it were, bigger and bigger. I mean,
1: it, it kind of reminds me of that other Mark Twain speech, and I've asked other people this before, as I said, with, with regard to the, the the authorities as, you know, are they are they smart people who are just putting us on, or are they idiots who really mean it? And I, <laughs> I, I, I'm of the belief that the central bankers and the monetary, I think they're actually very smart people. I think they're well-intentioned. I think that they're maybe misguided from time to time, and they have too much faith in their models and their 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 beliefs. But... um. You know, it, it's 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 interesting to see when when you get into these situations. At the end of the day, that's what central bankers—that's their their mandate—is to you know provide stability and to step into a crisis. So to think that they're going to stand back and not act when that happens, I think is 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 misguided as well. Of course yeah. they're going to act. Of course they're going to try to stop the crisis.
2: Well, there's there's two there's two questions. I mean, they've done what they've done. Now the question is. Do they really believe that it would be effective and not have side effects? I think to some degree they they did, although clearly there were sort of doubts being raised in various various corners of the of the community. Um, you know, Keynes, uh, what is, that, what is the, the line that he uses? Uh, it is astonishing the things that a man can believe if he thinks too long alone. You know, or if, uh, that's in the intro to the general theory, I think. but um, you know if you have a community that sort of is you know went to the same schools, they basically got the same models. so there there's an element of that. But the other thing that you have to keep in mind is that the central banks did what they did, let's say in two thousand and nine and two thousand and ten. And then just as they might otherwise have been thinking about renormalizing, um every other aspect of public policy uh, basically went into the opposite direction. So regulatory mechanisms got tighter and tighter. Uh, Fiscal policy, whereas it had been very expansionary in 2009 and 2010, went sharply into reverse. And so there was this sort of community of people sort of wanting to renormalize on the one hand but realizing that all of the other forces uh, were moving in the direction of lower aggregate demand, not higher, and yet underlying it all was the desire to have higher aggregate demand. So this was the line, you know, they were left as the only game in town and basically were sort of almost forced to do what they did. So it's it's a broader set of concerns, it seems to me, than just simply sort of looking at the central bankers. I think you have to look at everything else that was going on as well. And indeed, I think i I, I would say that even back two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten, I'm saying now, you know there there's going to be more restructuring and more insolvencies, and we should prepare ourselves. We should have been doing much more of this kind of stuff much earlier on. I think in addition, as we think about how the system could have been made safer, how we, we how we could have avoided being in the current situation, if there'd been much more reliance in the system on equity as opposed to debt, you know, if if people had not been allowed to buy back in as many shares as they did. Buying them back in with the issue explicitly of bonds in order to get the money to do the financing to buy the to buy back the equity, all of that stuff in retrospect looks like uh, it was enormously dangerous and ought not to have been allowed in the first place. Yeah, that should have been done years ago.
1: Absolutely. So I've got uh, what one other question here that I need to ask you, and that is: I know uh, in a previous interview that you did with Grant, you mentioned that. Uh, in all of your dealings with the various central banks and monetary authorities, you didn't see much of an appetite to, to return to gold or have gold be part of um, the the system. My question to you is as we get towards the end, I think a lot of us, and even not just you and I, but you know you're starting to see more in the popular press that, gosh, we're kind of getting to the end of end of this stuff. Uh, how much longer can these programs go on? Um, And one of the things that people often say to me is that if the problem is the dollar, you know, the the rest of the world is going to get tired of the US using the dollar as a weapon. Um, They have too much control over it, et cetera, et cetera. They should just get together and leave the dollar. And I guess my question to you is, if you never saw any uh, appetite to return to gold, did you see an appetite to de-dollarize? And then if you could also just briefly talk about how hard it actually is to de-dollarize from the system, or maybe you don't think it, it would be hard. But I'm just curious, your thoughts on that?
2: Well, in terms of the um, of de-dollarization, now I have to, you know, I've been outside this community for a long time, right? So what the current discussions are, I have absolutely no i no idea. But the reality is that the 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 U.S. as a proportion of total global production. You know, their their share of global GDP has been going down for years, um, and in some sense, their the importance of the dollar ought to go down, ought to have gone down commensurately, but it hasn't. Mm-hmm. You know, so the dollar, I mean, its share of reserves is as high as it's ever been. The amount of invoicing of of um, of trade in dollars is probably higher than it's ever been, and the reality is that you get these enormous. Um, network effects, so that as long as everybody's using the dollar, uh, both for invoicing and for financial provision of financial services, um, very hard to think of an alternative. And uh, it's only recently since, I would say, since the the Trump administration and the, what's the word, the aggravated, because the US has been doing this for a long period of time, but the Exaggerated or aggravated use of the dollar as a geopolitical weapon—that you've started to see some pushback, you know, particularly from the Russians, from the Chinese, uh, to to a lesser degree by the Europeans—and um, you—and one can't one can't blame them, but to try to come up with an alternative to the current system. Um, is going to be very uh, difficult because you do have all of these network effects that are out there, and we are where we are. You know, we always start from here. Yeah. There's something about these complex adaptive systems—they're <laughs> all path dependent. Yeah. You know, the old joke: I wouldn't. Say, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't start from here. But we are where we are. I personally think that it will take um, an aggravation of the current crisis. Uh, before people do start to fundamentally rethink the question of the international monetary system at the at the moment, I mean, um, it's often referred to as an international monetary none system because there are no rules. You know, a system is is based on it's a bit like a club. You yeah. know you choose to become a member of the club, but you know if you're a member of the club, there's certain rules you have to follow, yeah to wear a tie when you're at the bar after four or <laughs> So all you know all of these things and um, the it really does demand that the US, of course becomes convinced that somehow the current nun system is not good for it that yeah. it would be better for the. US if it the US were subject to certain rules, that also were binding on other people. Yeah. That would be better for everybody. But clearly, we're not there yet. And as you're well aware in the context of the current administration, the idea that there is solidarity in the system and that working cooperatively will bring benefits to everybody, uh, that mentality is has been replaced as far as I can tell by I only win if you lose which is a totally different way of looking at the world.
1: Well that's uh, it's been fantastic speaking to you. I'm going to I'm going to finish off here with a, there's a number of questions we ask all our guests. Uh, we call it the intersection. But the one question is is there a, is there one person living or dead who you'd love to interview more than anybody else?
2: Oh, I think I think the master Keynes, and the reason why it goes back to something that you mentioned before is most people don't have the courage to say, "I was wrong," and let's have another think. Whereas Keynes was absolute master at this, and uh, he wrote the general he wrote um, the general theory in nineteen thirty six, which, as far as I can tell, completely went in the opposite direction of the treatise that he wrote in nineteen thirty one, where the treatise basically said, "Easy money is the answer to." Yeah. All our problems by 1936, Keynes said is not true, <laughs> and my question would be how, how? How did you have the self-confidence? And he did this on a number of occasions to basically say, I got it wrong. And of course, you remember the famous quote from the um, the journalist who said to him, "Mr. Keynes, surely you've changed your mind." And Keynes responded, "When the facts change, I change my conclusions." What do you do, sir?
1: <laughs> That's one of the best ones, right?
2: Brilliant line. Uh,
1: are, are there any books that you're reading right now that, that you uh, that you like, or that you would recommend others read?
2: I'm reading a book by um, Norman Liebrecht, Le- and I attended a presentation by him just before the, the shutdown occurred in um, London. And uh, the book that he's written is called um, Anxiety and the Jews. Uh, How Jews Changed the World from 1847 to 1947. And in one part, I guess, uh, I'm interested in that range of territory, not just intellectually, but because the current climate uh, seems to me to be people turning in on themselves, you know, populism, nationalism, the right wing, and it bothers me. Uh, that one part of that, of course, is when things start to get rough. You blame the foreigners. You blame yeah. the others. Yeah. Um, a very interesting book, actually, and and um, yeah, very interesting book.
1: And then finally, uh, what view do you hold that's the most controversial in your professional life?
2: Well, I think the one we've been talking about for most of this interview, which is yeah. that uh, the fundamental problem is um, the financial cycle and the credit cycle. And uh, it's not uh, the business cycle and the inflation cycle. And um, I've been fighting that battle for twenty twenty odd years, and um, all I can say is I continue to do it. In That's- Paul Volker's famous words, the the title of his autobiography, I'm keeping at it."
1: <laughs> well, very good. Well, I have to tell you, Bill, I've super enjoyed this today. Um, I find you to be kind of one of the most knowledgeable and gracious. And uh, interesting people to speak with. If you don't mind, I'm going I'm to try to keep in touch with you, and I'll try not to fill your, your email inbox up too much. But uh, I'd love to be able to reach out and continue our conversations.
2: Oh, it'd be a pleasure. And at the, the last hour, or so whatever it's been, it's been, uh, it has been, uh, it's been a real pleasure. And I hope, uh, I hope much at least of what I've said, if not all, makes some good sense and resonates with some of the people who'll be watching the program
1: absolutely it's oh it's always great to have a view from the inside and i think you've been able to provide that and i know the real vision listeners are gonna gonna enjoy hearing what you have to say
2: yeah my pleasure thank All you right. very much
1: thank you
0: hey there since you got to the end i'm guessing you liked the video and that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film. We work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube, and there were no kittens in sight. So if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo@realvision.com. at realvision.com.